listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. You know, it's funny this week, you know, Monday, Tuesday, today, I've just had things like the moment I wake up and open my eyes, I've just had things like in my spirit to talk to you about. And today is is the same. You know, I woke up and I already had something in my spirit. It's like just the Holy Spirit gave it to me immediately. But um, I'm going to talk to you about three vital rules that they don't teach in Bible school, that they should. Now, I've not been to every Bible school in the world, obviously, but they're definitely not teaching these things at seminaries. I can promise you that. They're not teaching them at seminaries. And most Bible schools, that's not like an actual seminary. I don't think they're teaching these things. They didn't teach them at most Pentecostal Bible schools that I've been affiliated with or have friends that went to, because I've talked to them. And um, they didn't teach all of them, even at my Bible school. But I'm going to give you a crash course today. Three things that they should teach that they don't. And now after having been in the ministry for 21 years, this year's 21 years in the ministry. I can see how important these three three things are having ministered. And they should be taught. They absolutely should be taught. So I'll give you examples and I'll I'll show you what the Bible says, but um you have to you have to hear these things because the most impactful that you can be is is not going to come from, I mean, yes, we should study. The Bible commands us to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed that can rightly divide the word of truth. No question. You should be a person that studies. No question. But there are a lot of people that study that don't make a massive impact in their generation. There's a lot of people that study, and they study well. But they don't make a massive impact in their generation. There's people with PhD after PhD that you don't even know their name. And, you know, people always say, well, brother, it's not about if people know my name. It's about if they know Jesus. Well, yeah, obviously, we want people to know Jesus. But when you do anything of value that makes a large impact in your generation, people will know who you are. People will know who you are. I'll give you an example. You know, Billy Graham was not out there trying to get everybody to know his name. He was not there just marketing himself. 
<laughs> he was making it a point to bring people into the kingdom of God, to get people saved. But because he did it on such a large scale, you better believe people knew who he was. Let me just say it this way. <clears throat> it's impossible to make generational impact and people not know who you are. It's impossible. You can't make a generational impact and people not know who you are. And, I'll, and what I'm telling you is there are people that they study well, multiple PhDs. Nobody knows who they are. They've not made enough impact to even have any kind of a reputation outside their, their own circle. I'm not saying that we do these things so that people can know who we are. Don't miss the point. The point is that we should be making an impact that's significant on our generation. And when we do, <clears throat> it's just a given that people know who you are. You know, people knew who Steve Jobs was because he created products that impacted his entire generation and generations after. It's not that he was some great guy. In fact, most people that were close to him didn't care for him. They thought he was a jerk. If they, they said he was hard to get along with, was fired from his own company. I mean, not, not some guy you want to go spend time with and hang out. He was a jerk to people. But he made impact, created things, had ideas that impacted his generation. People know his name. That's why people know his name. And so <clears throat> that's how it works. That's exactly how it works. The more you do to affect people, the more people will know who you are. And, and you're called to make a large impact. So it's not that we don't study. We should study. We should study. But I know plenty of people that study that are very educated, but they've not made a significant impact. And so when I look at the ministries that have impacted the world the most, they're not ministries that focus themselves necessarily on education. They're not. Look at the largest <clears throat> ministries in the world. Yes, great preaching, great teaching. But it's not because they have extended education, PhDs, MDivs, you know. It, it's none of those things. It's the anointing of God that's upon your life. And then you say, well, what, do, what can I do? What do you do to ensure you can make that kind of impact? Stuff that they don't teach you at Bible school. I'm going to give you three today. I'm going to give you three. And um, the first one is this. You know, we hear a lot about preaching and teaching. We hear a lot about, and by the way, if you're just jumping on, take a minute, please share this broadcast. I hear a lot about preaching and teaching. And it's wonderful to have great preaching and great teaching. But preaching and teaching should not be an end in and of itself. It wasn't for Jesus. It wasn't for the apostles. 
it wasn't for the early church. Preaching and teaching is not supposed to be an end <clears throat> unto itself. There are times of training, but even in times of training, it's not the end in and of itself, just to get information. There should be a goal in mind. There should be a goal in mind. So <clears throat> a phrase, if you want to write this in your notes and put it in the comments, you can. A phrase that uh, my father said often when I was growing up, uh, that's a great rule of thumb, is this. You get what you preach. You get what you preach. Put it in the comments. If you preach salvation and you're preaching salvation messages, people should get saved. That should be the end result. People should get saved if you're preaching salvation. If you're preaching on healing, people should get healed. You know, it's a foolish thing to just preach on healing and then close the service in prayer. What's the point? We don't just need information on healing. The end goal is get people healed. That's what Jesus did. That's what the apostles did. That's what the early church did. So preaching and teaching, they are not an end unto themselves. One of my least favorite things to see happen is when people preach. I've been in services. They'll preach. And then when they're done preaching, they'll just close the service in prayer. They don't even minister to anybody. Why are you not ministering to anyone? Walk off the platform, go straight to the green room. It's time to go eat. Why aren't you ministering to anybody what you just preached? Minister to the people. People are hurting. They need a touch from God. They need breakthroughs. We should put a premium on the manifestations that come from the truth that's preached. The Bible says in John 8, 32, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. And so you get what you preach. One of the things that needs to be taught more is that we should preach toward manifestations. Preach toward manifestations. What do you mean by that? Believing God that the thing you're preaching for will bring manifestation of that thing to the people you're preaching. As I said, if I'm preaching to a group of people on salvation, I'm going to give a salvation altar call and believe God that people are going to get saved. If I'm preaching on healing, I'm going to then minister to those who need healing, lay hands on them, pray for them, anoint them with oil, whatever, and expect them to be healed. If I'm preaching on the joy of the Lord, the peace of God, you better believe I'm going to minister to people that have been battling depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and heaviness. I'm, I'm going to preach until that manifestation of what I preached is received by those people. Amen. Same with deliverance. 
And then what, what also helps is when you're preaching toward manifestation, it also keeps you as a preacher from preaching goofy stuff that has no end manifestation to it. You know, people get all enamored. And I, you know, I need to say this because in our generation, it needs to be said. Candy said, I received a huge touch from God at the meetings Monday night. Praise God. I'm so happy. But in my generation and under, and I'm sure it happened through, throughout the ages too. There's just people that get off on preaching these weird, like peripheral things that have no application, have no application in the Christian life. It's just something they somehow got interested in and decided to, to preach about it. But a lot of, it becomes a waste of time. You know, it becomes a waste of time. It's great for, if you want to study in your personal time, what's the point? Let me ask you a question. I'll give you a perfect example. What's the point of me preaching? I'm standing up in a revival service and me preaching, even at my home church, I'm a pastor now. What's the point of me preaching a whole message and, and, and dedicating an entire service to preaching on what will the earth be like in the millennium? Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> if you want to know, because the Bible does say some things about it, if you want to know, study it on your own time. Why would I dedicate an entire service to teaching on what will the earth be like in the millennium? Who cares? What what is that going to produce in people? What does that does that spark? You know, is, does that create an anointing, a conviction for sin that would cause people to repent and, and come to Jesus? Now, if you can find a way to preach that message and tie it back to salvation somehow, and 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 let the conviction of the Holy Spirit hit people, good for you. Because then your goal was what? Preach toward people getting saved at the end of this message. But if you're teaching something for information's sake, ask yourself, now that I've preached this, what's the practical application that I'm gonna that I'm pointing toward after this message? Doesn't, you know, what am I getting to? <laughs> and there's all kinds of stuff like that that people get into to preach. I've listened to people and they don't they don't even tie it back to the power of the Holy Ghost over demon spirits. What's the point of just preaching messages on the different types of demon spirits there are? Now, what you may be dealing with is a Leviathan spirit. It's a Leviathan spirit. However, you, sir, have a python spirit. That's a python. You, ma'am, are dealing with a Jezebel spirit. Do you know there's nowhere in the Bible that talks about a Jezebel spirit? There was a woman named Jezebel. You can see how she acted toward the prophets, but there was nowhere in the New Testament where they were casting Jezebel spirits out of people. Nowhere. There was nowhere in the New Testament where they were casting Leviathan spirits off people or Python spirits. You got these whole, going into the demonology, the type of spirit you're dealing with. And it doesn't even matter. 
It's like, what are you tying this back to at the end? Because you've got authority over every demon spirit. Now, it's a whole different thing if you're preaching on power over the devil. Because, you know, if you're teaching and then, you know, you're taking authority over what the enemy's done in somebody's life and ministering deliverance to them, it's a whole different thing. Or teaching believers that they've got power to, to uh, take authority over the devil in their own life and practically apply it. Don't let the devil harass you and come through and just do whatever he wants in your family and your life. And you're teaching essentially that on the authority of the believer and teaching believers how to take authority over the devil for themselves or cast out devils. The apostles did that. Jesus did that. But why do we need services where we're just simply identifying different demon spirits? The disciples, you know, the Bible may, may give us a little bit of a, um, a commentary and say, well, it was an unclean spirit. But it didn't. they didn't have to say, well, let me flip through my demon book here. Uh, what do I do with an unclean spirit? Oh, there it is. There's the concoction. It's the same power that casts out a spirit of infirmity is the same power that casts out an unclean spirit. Doesn't matter what it is. It has to go. Doesn't matter what it is. It has to go. And so people get caught up teaching things that have no practical application. I think, this is me, that it's a total waste of time. Total waste of time. You know, to do a six-week series on the blood moons, the blood moons, I think is a total waste of time. Now I'm giving you my opinion. You may disagree and say, you know, mentioning them and then talking about what Jesus said, there'd be signs in the heavens and then pointing it back to what? Pointing it back to the fact that Jesus is coming. It's time to live holy. Hold Sorry if I lose you for a second. Hang on. You know, time to live holy. T time to repent. Come to Christ. We're seeing the signs of the times, right? Signs in the heavens. I get all that. But to do a six-week series breaking down the blood moons, what's the point of that? Preach for a manifestation. You know, the great one of the greatest pieces of advice my dad ever gave me is when he said, until you're 30, you should basically just preach the cardinal doctrines of the church. And basically, he was pointing at the four square doctrines. Salvation, the, Baptist, uh, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, divine healing, and the second coming of Christ. <laughs> Tiffany said, end goal, I like this topic. Yeah, preach, what's the end goal? Know the end from the beginning. What am I going into this service to do? They don't teach you this, this kind of stuff in Bible school. They'll teach you how to write a sermon. They'll teach you homiletics, how to preach a sermon. They'll teach you how to communicate. All those things are important. All those things are good. But they need to be tied to something Jesus wants to do. Mary Beth's right. Deliverance is a big controversy because we have friends who spend hours with people in deliverance. Never took hours in the Bible. Didn't take Jesus hours, didn't take the apostles hours.
Do you know why it takes hours? This is my opinion as well. You know why it takes hours for people now? Is because they don't spend hours in prayer. They don't spend hours in prayer. I watched a, an African preacher casting demons out in a service one time. And as he'd walk around the sanctuary, they started manifesting. And he'd just walk right up to the demon-possessed person that was on the ground writhing, and he'd wave his hand and go, bye-bye. And when he'd say bye-bye, the demon would go. And then at the end of the service, after he'd done that many times, he told the people that were in the service, he said, have you noticed during the service that I'm not having to scream and shout and yell at the devil for the devil to go? He said, do you know why that is? He said, it's because I've already done my screaming and my shouting in prayer before I got here. I've done all my screaming and shouting in prayer before I arrived. And it's like E.M. Bounds said, much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. Preach toward a manifestation. If you ever get a chance to minister, maybe you're not a full-time preacher. Maybe they ask you to minister in your church on a midweek service or something like that. Take this advice to heart. Preach toward a manifestation. Make up your mind. What is it the Holy Spirit wants me to say, but what is it that he wants to do with the people that are there? Like last night, I preached on impartation by the laying on of hands. But then I laid hands on people and imparted at the end. Spiritual gifts are imparted through the laying on of hands. I preached on that, showed examples, gave stories, and then I did it. Because I knew that's where I was headed last night, from the beginning. From the beginning. When you see that, well, let me just say this. Why have we as Christians become so disinterested with the major things that Jesus wants to do? that we've become enamored with the minor things, the peripheral things. We're, we're majoring in the minors and we're minoring in the majors. I guess it's just not exciting to preach a salvation message anymore. I guess it's not exciting to preach on the covenant of divine healing. I guess it's not deep enough to preach on the baptism of the Holy Ghost anymore. We have to identify demon spirits that the Bible doesn't even identify. <laughs> what you're dealing with is the spirit of Lilith. She's in your bedroom every night, the spirit of Lilith. And they don't teach you this. They should. But I'm telling you, after 21 short years of ministry, preach for a manifestation. Every great preacher I've ever watched throughout history was preaching for a manifestation. Everyone that God ever used them to impact the world. Preaching toward a manifestation. When, when Reinhard Bonnke preached, what was he expecting? People to be healed and people to come to Jesus. What did he have? People healed and people come to Jesus. When T.L. Osborne preached, what was he believing would happen? People would be healed. People would come to Jesus. What happened? People were healed. People came to Jesus.
everybody that's made ma ma major impact, they've had this, I've got a goal. This is where we're headed. This is what God wants to do. Another thing that my father taught me that I think is a, a very, maybe I should write a book called Lessons My Father Taught Me. I probably will one day. But another lesson my father taught me was I'm trying to think of the best way to say this to you. My father's always been great at sticking to what's important. Stick to what's important. Somebody came to him and said to him, I'm listening to you preach. I listened to you preach 30 years ago. Thought they were kind of giving him a jab. You still preaching the same stuff today you preached 30 years ago. He said, thank you. Took it as a compliment. Thank you. Yeah, because I'm not blown around with every wind of doctrine. I'm not jumping on every trendy thing that comes out every two years in the body of Christ. One thing you can know about my father, you're never going to go to one of his services and find, oh, brother, tonight, brother Ted's preaching on the blood moons. Because he's, he knows what's important. Stick to what, stick to what matters. Stick to what's important. Stick to what the people of God need. You know, if, if Jesus made it a main focus, we should make it a main focus. If the apostles made it a main focus, we should make it a main focus. Not get bored with it. And he's always been great at Stick to what matters. Stick to what matters. Major in the majors, not in the minors. I'm going to write that down. I should do a book called Lessons My Father Taught Me. Stick to what matters. That's number one. Preach toward manifestation. They don't teach you that in Bible school. They should. They should. They should have a whole class on that. And they should point out foolishness that goes on. And then show what it looks like to see true ministry focused on the major things that Jesus gave us. And then seeing them manifested and enacted. I can't imagine being a person, you know, that feels like that. The reason I doubt this, people jump onto the broadcast like, I need somebody to speak to. I feel like I'm going to end it all. I can't do this alone. I can't imagine being suicidal and be like, you know what? I'm suicidal today. I think I'll just browse through Facebook and see what live streams are going and then just jump on there and just let everybody know where I'm at. Where I'm at. 
because shortly we'll be seeing a message with somebody's cash app name. Let me give you the second lesson that they don't teach in Bible school that they should teach in Bible school. Amen, Corey. If you have a ministry, the finances of your ministry are a direct result of two things. The sowing your ministry does and the spiritual impact your ministry makes. I want you to put that in the comments. The two things that govern the finances of your ministry. If See, they teach you fundraising. That's what they do at Bible school. They teach you how to fundraise. They teach you how to do a capital campaign. If you need to raise money for your building, you need to learn how to do a capital campaign. You need to learn how to do fundraising. That's what they teach you. They teach you the world's way of receiving finances. You need to check out in your city if there's any grants available to you. Okay? If that's the way you want to go. Your finances, the finances that come into your ministry are a direct result of your ministry's sowing. What does your ministry give? And the spiritual impact that your ministry makes. Years after being in Bible school, I heard Bishop Oyedepo teach on this, probably one of the most blessed ministries in the entire world. And he taught this very principle. The finances of your ministry are a direct result of what you sow out of your ministry, your seeds and the spiritual impact that you make. That's right. Fundraising is not in the Bible. Capital campaigns are not in the Bible. It doesn't, sowing doesn't change because you're an organization. You know, sowing, so it's like, well, I'm a person, I sow and I give, but you know, that's a corporation. The corporation doesn't give. Angie, there's nothing wrong with obviously re receiving offerings or doing, you know, whatever you're challenging the people to give. There's nothing wrong with those things because that's the Bible way. But what they teach us to do is to do it the world's way. They teach us to do it the way any other person would do it and not focus on the sowing and not focus on the faith to receive. And so let me read you what Paul said. I'll deal with the spiritual impact first. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let me read it to you from a couple different translations here. I'll start with the NLT. 
I'll just start with verse 1. This is 1 Corinthians 9.1. Am I not as free as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus our Lord with my own eyes? Isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? Even if others think I'm not an apostle, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof that I'm the Lord's apostle. This is my answer to those who question my authority. Do we have the right to live in your homes and share? Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a believing wife with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do? And as Peter does? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? Listen to this, verse seven. What soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing merely a human opinion or does the law say the same thing? For the law of Moses says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us. So that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share of the harvest. Verse 11, since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we've never used this right. We'd rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Look at this. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? And those who serve at the altar get the share of the sacrificial offerings. Verse 14. In the same way, the Lord's... Or the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Okay, this is, um, Mackenzie, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I just read verses 1 through 14. Now, um, I'm going to go over to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, 6, those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. You see that? So there's another passage that says the same exact thing. That people, notice, that are making a spiritual impact in the lives of others, are reaping natural things as a result. No question about it. And one of the things that blew my mind listening to that teaching was that it's true. The more spiritual impact you make, the more God supplies what you're doing. 
the more spiritual impact you make, the more God supplies what you're doing. Why would God put a large supply on someone who's not doing anything for the kingdom? Why would he bring a large supply and push it into the, the work of somebody that's not doing anything? He's not going to do that because they're not making the impact he's called them to make. And as you can see, God has the desire to supply those who are doing the work. It's interesting because like even, even when the apostle Paul, I'll take you there. Even when the apostle Paul became a, he became a, a, a prisoner. They're off, They're carting him off. They're carting him off to prison. And he's on a ship. And, and where, where do they end up? What ends up happening? They sh get shipwrecked in Acts 27. They're shipwrecked. And they land on the island of Malta, which they find out later. It's the island of Malta. And immediately, here, here's, the, here's the thing that you can't stop it. Paul's made such impact with his ministry. The blessing, the blessing continues to hit his ministry because he's made such an impact. And wherever he goes, he makes an impact. And as a result, the blessings flow because of it. The, just catch this. I wish they would talk. I wish they would teach this in Bible school. Strive to make spiritual impact. Strive to make spiritual impact. The um, passage here in Acts 28 they get shipwrecked on the island. And the Bible says immediately, as Paul's gathering sticks, you know the story, uh, a viper jumps out, bites him as he's gathering those sticks. And the people are standing there waiting for him to drop dead. And they think, oh, he's got secret sin in his life. Secret sin. He just shakes the snake off into the fire. And then they're like, he's a god. <laughs> Their, their opinions changed pretty quickly. But look at this. The Bible said, near the shore, verse 7, Acts 28, 7, where we landed was an estate belonging to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us and treated us kindly for three days. And as it happened, Publius' father was ill with fever and dysentery. Paul went in and did what? Prayed for him prayed for him, and laying his hands upon him, he healed him. Then all the other sick people on the island came and were healed. Verse 10, as a result, can you put two and two together here is what I've been teaching. As a result, we were showered with honors. And when, we, when it came time to sail, the people supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. Remember something, Paul is not in the middle of his ministry here. He's a prisoner on his way to Rome. He's a prisoner on his way to Rome. And what happened? Even in the middle of a shipwreck, he begins to continue, or he continues to make a massive spiritual impact. Gets to the island, prays for Publius' father, healed. 
All right, bring all the other sick people. Healed, 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 healed. Made such a powerful impact. Verse 10. As a result, we were showered with honors. As a result of what? As a result of the fact that he made spiritual impact. That's the result. Not as a result of anything that the guards that were keeping him did. They didn't do anything. The others that were on the ship with him that were bringing him to, to Rome, they didn't do anything. It wasn't a result of what they did. It was a result of what Paul did. Paul made phenomenal spiritual impact. And as a result, what happened? They were showered with honors and supplied with everything they needed. Amen. And this is a principle that people miss that's taught throughout the New Testament. The more you can make spiritual impact, God's not, why would God put his hand of blessing on lazy people that aren't doing anything for the kingdom? One thing I can't stand is watching people that have been called into the ministry coast through life. I'm blown away by the laziness in most churches and in most ministries. I'm blown away. Well, brother, you know, there's a lot going on this week and we, we, you know, our people just are a little bit burnt out. It's like, okay. I've never met, like in Western Christianity, there's such a pansy attitude, a pansy attitude. That's why I like going overseas and working with, with when I've gotten a chance to go work because they work. They work. Let me tell you something. They're not out golfing six days a week and then ministering on Sunday. I know of a man that pastors the largest church in the Caribbean. He's almost 70. He still takes a truck that has a fold-down side with a stage and drives it from city to city in Jamaica, sets it down, and preaches multiple crusades in one day. And he's almost 70 years old. He's not golfing. He's not looking for, he's out just chilling. Almost 70, taking that truck around the island, letting that fold down, do praise and worship, and then preach to the people, call people to Jesus. Yes, I'm speaking of, I'm speaking of making spiritual impact in your generation. Not in regard to your specific spiritual gifts. Everybody has access to all spiritual gifts if you've got the Holy Spirit. And I'm speaking about the ministry. If people are, this is why I'm teaching on three um, vital rules that they don't, they don't teach in Bible school, that they should. The finances of your ministry are a, res, are a result of your personal sowing from the ministry and the spiritual impact that your ministry makes. God supplies those that are going after it and doing the work. Amen. And the more you step out to do the work he's asked you to do, the more he supplies you. And then on top of that, you can't be a ministry that doesn't sow money. You can't sow finances and have the mindset, well, everybody should give to me. Everybody should give to my ministry. You know, we're the ministry. People should be giving to us. We don't give. We're, we're given too. No. Good way to keep your, it's a good way to keep your ministry broke. Good way to keep your ministry broke. We're taking, see, and this is how I'm trying to put it into practice. We're taking the biggest ministry steps we've ever taken this year of 2023. But do you know what else? We're also, we've also sown already 
the by far the largest seeds we've ever sown in the history of our ministry by a lot, by more than double, by more than double. So, but yeah, but don't you need all that money to do the, the, all the things you're doing with the church and with the ministry? I'm sure we could take that money and appropriate it somewhere. But what's, what's more important that the blessing of heaven floods into this ministry, floods into this ministry. And so, you know, what we've done enacted this principle. And of course, we've always been a giving ministry, always. But that's that's the lesson that I learned by listening to this teaching. It's about making spiritual impact and then being a sowing ministry. I'm going to give you the final one in a minute. You don't want to miss it. You do not want to miss it. Being a sowing ministry. You know, people think people think fasting and prayer is is like some kind of a a side thing. You know, like, oh, well, if you want to, you could do a little bit here and there. There are no ministries that I've ever followed that are make massive impact that don't fast and pray. None, none. Goose egg. There are no ministries that I've followed that make worldwide impact that don't fast and pray. And I'm talking about miracle ministries. They are ministries that fast and pray, fast and pray. The largest ministries in the world were ministries of fasting and prayer. T.L. Osborne was doing nothing, came back, fasted and prayed, got an impartation. A.A. Allen was doing nothing, came back, fasted and prayed. Jesus appeared to him, went, launched into miracle ministry. Dr. Cho built the largest church in the world. And when they asked his mother-in-law, how do you have such a large church? She said, we fast, 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 and we pray, pray, pray. The largest ministries, the most impactful ministries. Pastor Adeboye, Redeemed Christian Church of God. Churches in 160 nations of the world. They'll have two, four, two to four million people in their building. Huge, huge. Was one of the men that was extremely responsible for the turnaround in Nigeria. One of the men, fasting and prayer. Here's a man that until he was 70, fasted for 40 days, three times a year and prayed. Bishop David Oedepo, their ministry, fasting and prayer ministry. Anybody that's ever done anything massive, anybody that's ever done anything impactful, their ministries of fasting and prayer. Why would you take the time to fast and pray? Because it allows you then to go and make a great spiritual impact. That's why I wrote a whole book. I wrote a whole book on fasting, the, the complete biblical, a complete guide to biblical fasting. I, I had to write it. There was not a book for my generation. I went back through all of them. I read them all. There was not a book for my generation that covered what needed to be covered. So I wrote it. It might be the most important work I've done thus far. being translated into multiple languages right now. Spanish, German, Dutch. It's going to be done in Chinese. And people need to understand, we're called to make massive impact. How could we think that Jesus had to fast and pray to get where he got and we don't? How can we know? How can we think that the disciples had to fast and pray and they did? They did it after Jesus was gone. And we don't have to. Paul did it. And we don't have to. The early church did it two days a week and we don't have to. 
And we look at their impact and then we look at the impact some people are making today and wonder, yeah, there's a difference. It's your own personal giving and it's the impact you make spiritually. Most people can't make impact because they're not powerful inside. Doesn't mean they don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. They don't know how to release the anointing that's in them. Most people have never been taught how to release the anointing that's in them. Because every Christian's anointed. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit sealing their salvation. Every Christian's anointed. But most Christians, let alone preachers, don't know how to release the anointing that's in them. They don't know how to pay the price. That's why we reprinted A.A. Allen's book, The Price of God's Miracle Working Power. And thank you, Tiffany, for doing all the work to lay that out, if you're still on. Worked hard. The price of God's miracle working power. Jesus appeared to him during fasting and prayer and told A.A. Allen what was necessary for him to have a miracle ministry. If you want miracle working power, there's a price to pay. That's why not everybody's doing it. That's why not everybody has it. There's a price. I believe you can get that book on our on our store, shop.miracleword.com. And then let me say this, number three, I'll give it to you. They definitely don't teach this. Somebody logs on, says in the comments, what, you know the rules of every Bible school in the world? I said at the beginning, I don't know the rules of every Bible school in the world. But I know seminaries aren't teaching these things. And I know most Bible schools that are not seminaries are not teaching these things. And even Pentecostal practical Bible schools, many of them are not teaching these things. And they should teach them because they're vital. You know the rules of every Bible school in the world. Number three. Put it in the comments. Impartation matters far more than you think. That's number three. Impartation matters far more than you think it does. Far more. That's number three. And they don't teach this in seminary. Most of them don't even believe in impartation. Listen to me. The Assemblies of God, that is a Pentecostal denomination. A Pentecostal denomination. My family grew up in this denomination. The Assemblies of God. Up until this new overseer took over, publicly did not believe in impartation of spiritual gifts. They did not believe in it. They had a what they refer to as a position paper written by one or more of their scholars hosted on their website. And the position paper explained why they believed that there's no such thing as impartation of spiritual gifts from one man or woman to another man or woman. All spiritual impartation is from God to men. They've taken it down now, but I wrote a book called Further Faster, Further Faster, 
teaching on the power of impartation, what it is, how to receive it, how to operate in it. And I cited their paper in my book and showed how foolish of a position that is if you actually read the Bible. Because you have to skip around and do theological gymnastics to not understand that the Bible very clearly teaches impartation from one man to another. One man to another. It's not just from God to men. There is impartation from God to men, but from one man to another. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 9. The Bible says, Now Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Why? Let's ask a question. Why was he full of, he didn't just say natural wisdom, the Bible said the spirit of wisdom. The spirit of wisdom. How did Joshua receive a spirit of wisdom? It tells us. Because Moses had laid his hands on them, on him. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So how did Joshua receive a spirit of wisdom? Moses laid hands on him and imparted spiritual wisdom. Not only that, authority. The Bible says, so the people of Israel obeyed him, Joshua, doing just as the Lord had commanded Moses. It shifted the whole loyalty of the entire nation of Israel from Moses to Joshua. That's spiritual impartation through the laying on of hands. Say, so, well, no, it's only from God to men. Okay, well, here's the place where Moses imparted the spirit of wisdom to Joshua. Second Kings, go with me. Second Kings chapter two. And if we come down to verse nine, it says, when they came to the other side of the Jordan River, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. Tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. And Elisha replied, please let me inherit a double portion of your spirit and become your successor. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, not of the Holy Spirit, of your spirit, and become your successor. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I'm taken from you, then you'll get your request, but if not, you won't. That was the necessity for spiritual vision, prophetic vision. Then he saw the chariot take Elijah away. And the Bible says he picked up Elijah's cloak, verse 13, which had fallen when he was taken up. Then Elisha returned to the bank of the Jordan River and he struck the water with Elijah's cloak and cried out, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And then the river divided and Elisha went across. Look at verse 15. And when the group of prophets from Jericho saw from a distance what had happened, they exclaimed, Elijah's spirit rests upon Elisha. 
and they went to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. These were the same people that were mocking Elisha hours before, mocking him like he didn't understand Elijah was getting ready to be taken away. Now, Elijah's spirit by impartation comes upon Elisha. They recognize it from a distance, run to him, bow down low before him, and begin to call him sir and master. Impartation. Impartation. Jesus imparted to the disciples. Can you define impartation? Sure. I mean, if you have a dictionary, you can do it, but I'll do it for you. It's not a spiritual word. It's just a word. To impart something is specifically just to give something, to convey something, or to grant something. So, for example, if you've got a soccer ball sitting on the ground, it's stationary until what happens? Until by you kicking it, you impart force to the ball. You impart momentum to the ball, right? Get this, Michael. And when you impart force and momentum to the ball, it will move. It'll move forward. Why will it move forward? Because you just gave it something that it did not have on its own. It was sitting there still until force and momentum was transferred to it. Transferred to it. I tell the story often when I'm talking about the book Further Faster that I wrote. When we first moved to Florida, my, my girls, Brooklyn and Maddie, like to swim with me in the pool. And Maddie's super competitive and she wanted to race with Brooklyn, but she's older. So she would beat her time after time after time. Brooklyn was frustrated. And I told the girls, I said, let's do another race. And so I got behind Brooklyn. Maddie was on the wall. And I said, three, two, one, go. And when I did, Maddie launched off the wall and was swimming under the water and going fast. I took Brooklyn and threw her through the air, way beyond where Maddie was swimming, three quarters of the way down the pool. She landed with a splash and swam, got to the other side of the pool first, and Maddie was confused. And the only reason she was able to win that race, she couldn't have done it in her natural strength. The reason that she could do it is because she had somebody that had more strength than she did, more power than she did, and imparted it to her and threw her further, faster. That's what impartation is. I'm gonna explain it to you from the book of Philemon. Get this, Michael, and write it in your notes because this will help you immensely. Philemon is a letter Paul wrote, obviously, to Philemon. But he's talking about a man whose name is Onesimus. And he appeals to Philemon for this man, Onesimus, and says this. Verse 10, I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Look at verse 11. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. You see that? The ESV says it this way. Formerly, 
he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. What changed? The only thing that changed in Onesimus' life was that Paul became his spiritual father. That's the only thing that changed. It's the only thing that changed. What happened? He received impartation from somebody who was at a greater level than he was, and it took him from useless to useful. Put this in the comments today. Impartation takes you from useless to useful. Orlando said, that Sunday that you prayed for me, I believe that. The anointing that you received in the conference at Revival Today Church, I got hit that Sunday so hard that it was out into the next Monday. Praise God. Impartation takes you from useless to useful. Useless to useful. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. That's Philemon 111. Robert says, uh, evangelist Robert Preston says, this is exactly what happened to me when Dr. Rodney called me out in one of his meetings and laid hands on me and it changed everything in my life and ministry. That's impartation. That's impartation. I don't have time to teach everything about impartation, but you need to get the book and I don't need to do it to make money because I don't even make that much money on a book sale. But I'm going to tell you something. It'll help you. It will help you. Shop.miracleword.com further faster. Only if you're interested in knowing more about impartation. You don't have to buy the book. I'm just saying, if you want to know more about it, I can't teach it all on this broadcast. If you want to read 240 pages of what I wrote about it, <clears throat> it'll help you. What else? Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, stir up the gift that lies within you that came through the laying on of my hands. So obviously, see, he first talks about the faith that was generational. It was in your grandmother, then it was in your mother, and now I'm persuaded it's in you. But then he says, beyond the faith, there's also a gift that came when I laid hands on you. Stir it up. The book is called Further Faster, Maddie. Penny number three is impartation matters way more than you think it does. That's point number three. They don't teach it in Bible school. They should. Impartation matters far more, far more than you think it does. And Paul said, stir up the gift that lies within you that came through the laying on of my hands. When Elijah imparted double portion anointing to Elisha, Elisha finished with double the number of miracles that Elijah performed. Elijah had eight. Elisha had 16. Jesus said in John 14, 12, the works that I do, you will do also. And greater works than these because I'm going to be with my father. 
in heaven. Love you, Carolyn. Robert said, I've never heard one thing like this in Bible school ever, but it might be the most important thing to know in the ministry. That's right. Because it changes everything about your life and ministry. Who you receive from. That's why I don't receive from everybody. And that's why I don't seek everybody to lay hands on me. That's why I think it's stupid. And I know people get, they get upset about this. It's stupid to have your youth group crowd around the guest evangelist. Say, hey, everybody, come on up here. We just like to lay hands on Brother Ted before he leaves. That shows that you're spiritually stupid and don't understand how impartation works. Come on up, everybody. Let's just lay hands on our guest evangelist and ask God to anoint him. If I need the youth group to lay hands on me so that I can be anointed to minister to your church, you've got the wrong evangelist in your church. People that just finished listening to Drake on the way into church. And I need you to lay hands on me so I can be anointed. I had this old farmer try to lay hands on me in the lobby of a church before I went in to preach. Sitting there in jean overalls and muddy boots with his nipples hanging out because he had no t-shirt on underneath. A dirty trucker's hat. You the preacher? Yes. Let me lay hands on you before you preach tonight and ask God to bless you. No. Why? Because look at you. What do you have that I want? Nothing. Nothing. I had a guy try to lay hands on me. He was a Nazarene pastor. Showed up every night to the revival in bare feet looking like a hobbit. Didn't understand anything about the spiritual spiritual realm. He st- now, again, he was he was kind, he just didn't understand. He had no knowledge. And he said to me as I was packing the car to leave, he said, uh, you know, brother, I, I I think I should just really uh lay hands on you and pray for you before you leave. And I said, no. He said, what do you mean? What do you mean, no? I said, no, I'm not going to let you lay hands on me. He said, why not? I said, well, let's think about it together. In the Bible, there's only a specific number of reasons to lay hands on somebody. I said, number one, to separate them into the ministry. I said, I'm already in the ministry. So you don't need to lay hands on me to separate me into the ministry. I've already been ordained and and I'm in the ministry. I said, number two, we lay hands on people if they're sick and they need healing. I said, I'm not sick. I don't need healing. I said, another reason that people laid hands on others in the Bible like Acts chapter eight was to get them filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized in the Holy Ghost. I said, I'm already baptized in the Holy Ghost. I speak in tongues. I'm full of the Holy Ghost. I said, another reason that people lay hands on people is to cast demons on them. I said, I don't have a demon. Don't, don't need that from you. 
And then, of course, impartation. I said, the only other reason I can think to lay hands on somebody is Jesus brought the little children unto him, laid his hands upon them, and blessed them. And I said, I'm more blessed than you are. So what do you have to give me that would what cause you to need to lay hands on me? And he looked. He said, you know, I've never thought of that before. That's true. I said, yes. Well, guess what? I have thought about it before many times, which is why I'm telling you no. I didn't say that. Obviously, he was nice. He just didn't understand. But yes, I have thought about it before. That's why I don't just let every Tom, Dick, and Harry lay hands on me. Brian said, can a person receive from another through prayer if they aren't able to lay hands? Of course they are. The laying on of hands is not the only way to minister to people. Look at the life of Jesus and the apostles. It's not the only method of transfer. Sometimes it's the spoken word. Sometimes it's a prayer cloth, like Acts chapter 19. Sometimes it's anointing with oil. Sometimes, I mean, the anointing got in Peter's shadow. And the shadow touched the sick and they were healed. The anointing got in Jesus' spit. And he spit into the ground, made mud, and put it on the blind man's eyes and he could see. The woman with the issue of blood just touched his clothes, his robe, and he, she was healed. There's multiple ways to receive. Do you know the people in Cornelius's house, they received just as Peter was preaching? Acts 10. As he was preaching, they were all not just converted, filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues and prophesy. So there's many ways to receive. It's not just through the laying on of hands. I'm just telling you that these examples I'm giving you are through the laying on of hands. And impartation matters way more than you think it does. That's why I'm not trying to run around and listen to everybody. I know the direction I'm headed. I know who, I know what my company is. I know the group that I run with. I know where God's called me to be. I can see it. So I stick to that. I stick to that. I know my calling and my purpose. I know where I belong. I know where I don't belong. So I don't, I don't need everybody ministering to me. I need the right people ministering to me. I need the right people ministering to me. My father in the natural is actually my spiritual father, which is a blessing many people don't get. You're being imparted to right now, Brian, through this teaching. This is one of the ways you receive impartation. There's an impartation of wisdom through teaching. You're receiving it right now. So receive it in Jesus' name. You know, you can receive things from men that aren't even alive anymore. <clears throat> and I'm not talking about grave soaking. Don't be like those nut jobs that run to people's graves and try to suck their spirit out of the grave. I'm going to suck his anointing right up out of the ground into my body. YouTube is a wonderful resource. You can go back and listen to Brother Kenneth Hagin teach. He's in heaven. He's been in heaven since 2003. People do that. <clears throat> been in heaven since 2003. But you can go back and listen to him teach, watch his services. I still do it and receive impartation from those services just by watching them online. I'll go back and watch A.A. A. Allen, Jack Coe, R.W. Shambach, Fred Price, 
men that aren't even alive anymore and receive impartation from those services because they've been recorded and uploaded to YouTube. You can still receive impartation through the teaching and preaching of the word. Though they're not alive, you're receiving what? Through their teaching and through their preaching. Impartation. It matters. Do you know, Brother Kenneth Copeland's wife, Gloria Copeland, wrote a book called God's Will for You is Prosperity. Bishop Oyedepo in Nigeria read that book and recognized, ran out of his room shouting, I can never be poor. I can never be poor. What happened? He received an impartation, a revelation of knowledge and wisdom from the word of God from reading that book. And it launched his ministry into next level prosperity. What was that? That was impartation. Mackenzie asks a very <clears throat> common question. I'll put it up. Do you believe sin can be imparted too? I've heard it preached that homosexuality or addiction can be imparted, but IDK. I believe in impartation. I believe in America. I believe in impartation. I'm wondering what verse of scripture, and I'm not saying this in a, I'm saying this in a truly curious way. I've had people ask me the question before. What scripture would somebody use in the New Testament to preach negative impartation? That's what I, I've not taken all the time to, pre, to teach or, or to study negative impartation, but I'd like to see what, what passage of scripture or narrative would somebody use to teach the concept of negative impartation. Now, if you are speaking about negative impartation that would come through simply um, learned behaviors, a mindset that comes, and that is a form of impartation. You can learn things, wisdom from being around somebody and something's transferred to you, a thought process is transferred to you, it's imparted to you. Then yes, that unclean lifestyle, that unclean mindset can be imparted in that way because in one sense, you're adopting the mindset, the thought process of another. <clears throat> and so in that way, yes, because mindsets travel throughout groups of people. Thought process. Do I believe, for example, that negative impartation can come on, for example, if somebody touched me or laid hands on me that had some kind of a demon spirit in them? <clears throat> no, I don't believe that they could transfer that demon spirit into me as a believer because Christians can't be demon-possessed. I do have a book coming out on that very soon, as soon as I can, called The Deliverance Deception. It's one of the things that needs to be taught in our generation. Christians can't be demon-possessed. 
It's not in the Bible. It's, it's actually a slap in the face to the power of the Holy Ghost. And um, the power of redemption. Yes, the track record of lying in Abraham's lineage, no question. Lied about his wife being his sister. It wasn't a true lie because she really was his half-sister. Um, yes, if someone's leading worship and they're gay, I'll still never be gay. I agree. But I do believe that an unclean spirit, if allowed to remain, it gets, it gets around. I've seen it happen. I'm still thinking of, you know, what you would use I guess, I guess one of the passages of scripture that you could use is where the Bible says bad company corrupts good character. And if you constantly hang around that spirit, bad company, it will corrupt your character. It'll cause you to fall. That's why Paul said, flee youthful lusts. Flee. Get out of it. Get out of there. <clears throat> and by the way, homosexuality and, and, and sexual perversion, all those things, Paul listed those as works of the flesh, not as demon spirits. Paul did not list lust and homosexuality as demon spirits. He listed them as works of the flesh. I'll read it to you. The Bible says, <clears throat> Galatians 5 Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you. Doesn't list them as demon spirits, list them as works of the flesh, because your flesh desires those things. Your flesh does. When that man in, in, in the town, in the city of Corinth, was having sexual relations with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul did not say, you need to get a deliverance service going, and you need to get in there and lay hands on that man, cast the spirit of lust off of him. Cast that spirit of lust off of that man. And No, he said, tell him to stop it, and if he won't stop it, throw him out of the church. work of the flesh and Paul said you've got the power of the Holy Spirit to put your flesh under amen now is there a demonic influence that drives these things you better believe there is you better believe there is the Bible speaks of in the gospels an unclean spirit is there an unclean antichrist spirit that drives these things you better believe there is but it doesn't mean that every person uh, that's uh, a homosexual is, is demon-possessed. <clears throat> and there's things they don't teach. They're not teaching them in Bible school. They need to be taught. I wanted you to hear them today because I want to see you flourish. I want to see you make a great impact. And I'm going to pray for you here. I know people have been asking prayer requests throughout the whole broadcast. And now I'm going to pray. Because I'm telling you, God has a plan for you to flourish, to rise high, to make a great impact before Jesus comes. And so I want to pray and ask the Lord that you 
will not stay where you're at. This is the smallest you'll ever be. The smallest you'll ever be in Jesus' name. Father, I pray for every person watching. I pray that you would anoint them in a new measure of your grace and anointing of fire to do what they've been called to do. Let their impact be great in Jesus' name. Let the manifestations of your spirit through their life and ministry be great. I pray that the resources that they need would come in in full measure and more than enough, more than enough. And Lord, let them see clearly the importance of impartation and receive it with a humble, meek spirit. Let this be the smallest they'll ever be. Give them nonstop increase as they seek you. Go higher and higher and higher in the mighty name of Jesus. I thank you for that. I give you praise. Amen. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.